0: So today we're talking to Chris, hi Chris. Hey. And we are going to talk about high performance data processing in Clojure. Um, So well, maybe before we start, like who's Chris?
1: So um, I am Chris Nuremberger and I live in Boulder, Colorado, right smack in the middle of the US. And um, I've been developing software since probably 1999 professionally was Mm -hmm. my first job right around then. And I had a natural kind of pull towards the most complex things I could find. So a lot of C++ and a lot of like I worked at a company that was doing sort of a game engine type, Mm -hmm. a high performance graphics engine for the browser. And it got a lot of experience with all sorts of things doing that. And then I went into GIS for a while and then I've been contracting ever since. Well, not ever since. So then I did contracting for a few years, and then I worked for NVIDIA. And after NVIDIA, it's been one startup, and then this consulting company, TechAscent, which I'm at now.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So what is TechAscent? What are you guys doing there?
1: So TechAscent's just a general kind of closure consulting company where mm-hmm. we have, you know, we do front-to-back full-stack apps, mm-hmm. where we will do um, all the way from the back end to the front end. Um, but we like smaller apps, so we don't generally, uh, do really big things. Most of our entire apps are probably under 10,000 lines if that, Mm -hmm. and it's just a general closure consulting company. Mm -hmm. Um, I, myself will also do audits so I can read so many different languages. Now I'll audit various ideas for venture capitalists and things like that. And, Mm -hmm. um, I also like, obviously, my 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 favorite thing to work on is performance issues. So, um, I really like it when people come to me, professionally or otherwise, with um, some task that they're doing that's data oriented mm-hmm. that they want to see, sort of what, what's the limit of the JVM,
2: mm-hmm.
1: in terms of doing this task, right? And I okay. think that the tools that I've built have made it, at least possible to get within a few percentage points of what the limit of the JVM actually is if you were to hand code the whole thing all the way out.
0: So you mentioned like small apps. Can you just give some examples? Like if someone would have any kind of problems like if they could like reach out to take a what kind of like is there any kind of demographic for a specific client or anything like this? Or
1: no, like we've done we've done like basic server side the back end server side stuff between behind like a facial engineering system, mm-hmm. which is small in terms of code, but massive in terms of data. Mm -hmm. And we've done a lot of just start to finish apps for businesses. Mm -hmm. So um, a good example would be uh, for one company we built. They, uh, they do, they just put what are called snow guards on roofs. And those, a snow guard is one or more, pieces of metal that's supposed to stop large, heavy blocks of snow from falling on people underneath the roof. Mm -hmm. And that has to do which snow guards you can use has to do with the type of roof. If you have the angle of the roof, what's the snowfall in the area. It's, it's Mm a kind of a complex engineering calculation to do this. So we help them both do their website and build out calculators. So their sales team and so customers themselves can kind of develop the, the systems that they want to have. Mm -hmm. Uh, and cool. So that's an example. We've done a few like beginning to end apps for startups. Mm-hmm. We've done a few apps for companies that are existing. And it's really just whoever comes to us. We're a small, really, really experienced team. So
2: mm-hmm.
1: right. that's how we want to – the type of projects we want are ones that that you'd want that type of team for.
0: How, does, how did Closure came to your
1: radar? Um, oh, man. I've been – It's interesting because I kind of did Clojure. I tried to use Clojure at NVIDIA for scripting tasks and for automation of various things. Mm -hmm. And that was in 2012. And the first Clojure repos on my GitHub, I think, are around 2012. So that was like Mm 1.6. There was no line engine. There was no, Mm. I don't even remember how you got the things to run anymore. (laughs) But we were, we also, we messed around with languages quite a lot. Like I'd say every mm-hmm. once every two weeks, we would get into a new language. So another one we played with quite a bit was Factor, and Factor mm-hmm. is like a sort of a really advanced fourth, where it's a totally stack-based languages language, and mm-hmm. in the sense where it's like a Lisp, um, it's just well, I don't know if I'd even say it's like a Lisp, but it's a very very low lang- level language where you definitely are the compiler. And you mm-hmm. have to think in terms of like stack manipulations in order to get the data where you need it is so that's top mm-hmm. operator will act on it and it it was a trip it was really fun but um, closure was obviously way more practical from the very beginning and we tried to use it and we did use it for some small things but then I was kind of not doing closure for quite a while because I just didn't need it at NVIDIA
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um, came back to it four years later. Mm-hmm. Well, six years later, and it was amazing how much it changed. So I missed, I missed the, the, when I did Clojure, it was really just basic functional programming with maps and sequences of maps, more or less. And then many years later, transducers had come out and transducers changed the nature of the game for some set of people. And uh, Clojure had grown up quite considerably in various, Subtle ways that I it took a while to kind of get a hold of, mm-hmm. um, and the libraries had just closure script came around and the libraries had changed a lot. So when I came back, it was like relearning almost a new language. Mm-hmm.
0: Was there um, anything about closure that you like clicked in the way you like to work or?
1: Yeah. So when I was before I got to Nvidia, we what got me to Nvidia was building a big graphics editor, so mm-hmm. Maya style. You import models, and you can attach animations to them, and you can mess with how you want them displayed. And those a very complex desktop application mm-hmm. with a lot of complex UI and a lot of complex data management. And I got RSI. We did it in C sharp, and I got RSI trying to develop the thing. I got RSI pain in my wrists. Yeah. All oh, right. All oh, right. Stress yeah. injury. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, I just kind of felt that. Uh, I needed to learn to program at a higher level of abstraction. And I felt like there was a lot to languages that nobody knew or at Mm -hmm. least wasn't talked about because there's a a long history of languages and we're all using these C-based derivatives. Sure. Basically. And it just seemed like there was probably a lot there that was missing. And so Mm -hmm. I went to Common Lisp Mm -hmm. where you have the, like the foundations of a lot of modern computer science are displayed pretty clearly in common Mm list. And I, um, I, I really fell in love with compile time programming and all this other stuff. And I felt like you could, if you could program at a higher level of abstraction, you could, you could make complex things much faster and much in a much less error prone way. Mm -hmm. And then so closure is a natural kind of outgrowth of that. And I always liked functional programming. Mm -hmm. I always, even when you program in C, depending on how you do it, you can do a lot of functional programming in C. You can pass mm-hmm. by value and return by value, which is copying all the data all over the place, but that's super duper efficient if it's just on the stack um, as opposed to on the heap. And mm-hmm. I just, I really like um, the fun- the basic functional abstractions of just uh, persistent vectors, persistent maps, and map and filter and describing mm-hmm. problems as data. I would say... Over time, I've learned a lot of the things that I used compile time programming for. So um, I would use runtime interpretation of data for now, even in C. Mm -hmm. And so I think that actually gets me all the way back to old school C guys who would do that all the time. But a good example is I worked with the PhysX physics engine in NVIDIA and wrote um, online debugger for it a playback style debugger. So you could run, you could attach it to your game. You could run your game for a little bit, and then you could go through the debugger and see all of the physics properties on all of the objects and Mm -hmm. see what, like, why did this guy go through this wall? (laughs) Um, Which is not an uncommon problem to have, or why are the particles rocketing around the level at an insanely high rate? Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, looking through all that stuff, I, I, um, I used a lot of, I used clang, to analyze the physics code base or at least its interfaces that it was giving to other people. And so I could write an XML layer based off the clang metadata. And I needed both an XML layer and I needed a network layer. And I leveraged um, a C++ template style metadata definition to do this. And when the whole thing was said and done three or four years later, the whole thing's working. I had this epiphany that like, If I had used claim to produce just JSON, some JSON description with some minimal set of, of compile time hooks, I could have done everything with a lot simpler and with a lot less work. And then it kind of clicked that like a lot of the things that we were using code generation for, we really should just be describing in data and, and Mm -hmm. writing interpreters for, for,
2: Mm -hmm. um,
0: Right. And how did you end up going into the direction of like, you know, uh, data, science, machine learning and stuff like this?
1: We worked at the, the, the startup I was at after NVIDIA was named Think Topic and it was Clojure data science startup first and foremost. So that was the market. Mm-hmm. That was the plan. We we're going to do data science and closure, mm-hmm. And we felt that the closures level of abstraction was so much higher than Python. Mm-hmm. that if we could get some things working in Clojure, then we could iterate much faster on full-on apps because that that was an awesome end-to-end company. And Clojure's strength for an end-to-end app where you're going to do just both the back and the front end, and especially if, with, if you have two, three people, Clojure is, I, th- I really think Clojure is the best choice, period. Mm-hmm. There's nothing even close to how fast you can iterate on that style of app in Clojure. Mm-hmm. And so right. we felt like with a little bit more understanding of how the JVM worked and bring in the C programmatic model in a few ways, we could we could compete in terms of data science enclosure with any shop doing data science.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was the library uh, that I think you first time came on my writer, uh, which is the library Cortex.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And yeah, so that was the- fun. <laughs> so so that was the first library for closure like machine learning and stuff that you just work on when during doing the startup?
1: Yep. Yeah. And that was um there were a lot of tensions around that, believe it or not, but it was really, really a lot of fun. I would say Cortex, I was able to bind to the C U D N N the 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 like raw NVIDIA. Uh, deep neural network bindings and mm-hmm. I was built I built the entire neural network basically. You could run it in CPU mode and it would run decently quickly, but it was really closely bound to CN C U D N and it would run big neural networks extremely fast due to that.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh C-U-D-N-S, is that CUDA or how does, is yeah, this it's the
1: thing yeah CUDA's deep neural network layer and uh, they had mm-hmm. CUDNN was out well before Intel had their deep neural network layer. Uh, Nvidia saw the promise of deep neural networks in terms of selling their hardware much sooner than I think anybody else did.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like, so, okay. So you created Cortex and this went, and then out of this, the tech started and then you started to work on some other things or,
1: um, yeah, I, I created Cortex and there, uh, the, the tensions there were, um, a lot of people wanted me to use core.matrix through and through for Cortex. Mm -hmm. And it was extremely frustrating trying to explain why core dot matrix was a poor type of abstraction for cortex. And it was and still is. Mm -hmm. And Neanderthal wasn't there yet. And Deep Diamond didn't exist. And Neanderthal doesn't have convolutions, which are some of the most complex things you can deal with in the neural network land. And so... Um, there's just a lot of tensions of like trying to use libraries that were already part of the community versus doing this one-off thing that was only useful for neural networks and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um, and out of that experience, I kind of came to the conclusion and, and I built out Cortex's math layer a little bit, not very far, but a little bit, but I kind of came to the conclusion that the best thing you could have in Clojure wasn't a linear algebraic layer, but a very efficient way to just use native heap and JVM heap buffers from Clojure Mm -hmm. because other people had built the linear algebra layer and other people had built various pieces. And what was missing was, um, a low level way that I can pull in C interfaces quickly and use them efficiently, uh, but still not be bound to C native heap buffers and C style programming.
0: So is this why this uh, TechML dataset library exists or where, why, why did you create this library for like what's the
1: So it it kind of came about almost backwards in that I I um I went and built the first version of the data type system which is which is the supposed to be the unifying layer between JVM heap and, and native heap based kind of programming Mm-hmm. And then, uh, we were, I built a basic data frame abstraction that was just based off sequences of maps of which I think there are many already, there are many others in the Closure ecosystem. And we just started, I mean, a bunch of guys in the cyclage community and they, mm-hmm. I, I shouldn't use guys, but they were guys. There was, it was, mm-hmm. uh, it was join our and Daniel Slutsky basically who did this, mm-hmm. but they just started testing it against other data frame abstractions and various other things. And we found that the, the memory usage and the performance wasn't there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so we found the best data frame and job at that time was table saw. And we, I figured out that TableSaw was just basically a column store database where it just stored the data in columns as opposed to row wise. And once I figured that out, I started to see all the advantages of programming, Column-wise, as opposed to row major, in terms of what the JVM was actually capable of and what it could optimize really well, mm-hmm. and that that built that started the path down the data set library.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, um, so maybe we can unpack a couple of things. Uh, so you mentioned JVM heap versus native heap. What mm-hmm. what are we talking about
1: here? Yeah. So um, the. Uh, there's a few things here, and that's that, that really is my terminology for that. The Java world uses on and off heap,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which drives me crazy because all of the memory you allocate in a program is from the heap, from some form or another. Mm-hmm. It's all stuff you've asked the OS for pages, and the OS maps a page into your address space. So some of that heap could be managed by your garbage collector, and some of that heap may not be. But why you would call the stuff that's managed by a garbage collector on heap and the stuff that's not managed by your garbage collector off heap is beyond me. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't tell you what's going on. Mm -hmm. It is just a legacy of Java thinking Mm -hmm. from years ago that is inaccurate in terms of what it's describing. So all it means is um, a JVM array is managed by the garbage collector through and through, and that is um, JVM heap. Whereas Mm -hmm. if I call malloc through one of our interfaces and I get back an integer that is not managed by the garbage collector and that's native heap memory.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, So that's really the only distinction. And I really don't like native and JVM heap. I think you can intuitively see like JVM heap, you don't have to call free on and anything from the native heap, you have to account for how you're going to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. But I think both of those are, I mean, uh, if you take, any given program in existence and you want the most efficient representation for it, it's going to be some mix between some garbage collected code and some non-garbage collected code. It doesn't matter the program. So Mm -hmm. any program you give me, sometimes a garbage collector is a really good way to manage the data. And sometimes a simple pool is. And sometimes you can preallocate everything you need up front and you never need to release it. Or lots of things like that. So, the the optimal path through any program is some combination between using the garbage collector for some parts of it and not using the garbage collector for some other parts of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that was one thing that I felt was throughout the JVM's existence. I felt like that was ridiculously difficult in a needless sort of way. It doesn't make sense. Like the very the history of the JVM is kind of from my perspective is kind of a, a history of of um just uh, not necessarily broken promises, but definitely some some a uh, way, some desire to like rebuild the entire world in terms of the jVm mm-hmm. talking about how it, in the meantime selling it by saying like, oh, if you build it like this, it'll have fewer errors and we can do better optimizations for it and the, kind of all this stuff. and that means that like, a lot of very complex software has been written at least twice once in C and once in Java land. And I just think in the beginning, especially for embedded program or lots of the, the target use cases of the JVM, they would have been much, much better off having a very clean foreign interface to see from the very mm-hmm. beginning. Mm-hmm. And not having that has, in my opinion, been a major problem. Um, so, and, and, I I lost track of your original question, but like a lot of the impetus behind D-type, the the low-level D-type library is just like, Mm -hmm. let's just build a sane layer and not re-implement things. Mm -hmm. Make it really easy to bind to C dynamically, really easy to use buffers efficiently from C, not have to copy them into the JVM. Mm -hmm. Um, Just uh, let's not try to reinvent things like that. Mm -hmm. And that's been, you, you know, there are so many... JVM was sold so heavily in that it's, it'll be really efficient because we can optimize things. We can actually see the data running through the program and optimize things dynamically. And Mm -hmm. those, that is such bullshit. And it should never have been said in the first place until they actually proved that it worked, but they never Mm -hmm. once did. And the JVM was always much slower than doing it in lots of different ways. Mm. And it was always just a frustration of me. It's like, instead of selling this crap, why don't you just make it easier to use the things I've already written?
2: Because
1: mm. I do like using garbage collectors. It makes your program a lot simpler, but I don't mm-hmm. want to use it for all of my program. I have mm. lots of game engines and CUDA bindings and who knows what laying around that I don't want a garbage collector getting its hands into really.
0: Mm. So this uh, so this is the, the library you mentioned, the D type uh, next, and there is the abstraction there. Uh, so you have the, the reader and the writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so wh- why? So I guess you gave a premise. Why did you create those? You wanted to have the, the direct access to the C, right? Yeah. Um, and what are the other like? Why? Why do we? So apart from this uh, connection to the C, uh, are there any other advantages of doing this uh, abstraction?
1: Well, um, programming in terms of random access containers. It's almost like you... You. It's interesting to look at the difference between an array and a sequence. Okay. Um, and it's kind of important to note, I think, that the only true abstraction in hardware is an array. That's it. Okay. There is no other abstraction in hardware. You can allocate some memory, and that's what you can do. That's it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the only abstraction in hardware is an array. And from an array of bytes, we can say some of these bytes are floating point numbers and this chunk of bytes is a floating point number or whatever else, but, um, uh, and you can build up a sequence abstraction from that original array abstraction. But in my experience, when you try to build things that have concrete measurable qualities that you need to enforce, such as we can only use this much memory, or we need to be done in this many milliseconds it's best to stay really close to the exact abstractions the hardware can support. Mm -hmm. Um, And while I think sequence based programming is nest, it's almost like you, um, you flip your mind into a different mode where instead of programming in a, a theoretically correct computer science sort of way, which is sequences sequences are like the, the general atom of computer science. I think they kind of, they remind me of lambda calculus or something really abstract. Um, You flip into this hardware area where it's like you're describing things in terms of what the hardware can actually do and trying to build up to the general computer science realm instead of starting the general computer science realm and building down to maybe what the hardware can do. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the the ray abstractions, like, you know, you end up with things where I parallelize filtering across the data set but filter itself isn't lazy. You flip the definition of things that can be lazy and things that cannot be. Sometimes, mm-hmm. when you start dealing with random access containers. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think there's another part of things we can unpack here. So uh, you're talking about lazy and unlazy, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the the abstraction itself. Uh, it's also uh, type specific. Mm-hmm. Uh, like comparing this to closure, we used to you know just packing into our data structures, whatever kind of data type you want. Why is mm-hmm. it important to have one specific data type uh, for those calculations or It's for not
1: necessarily important for those calculations, but it is important that I can say I need a buffer of unsigned bytes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can then access it like it's a general data structure, but the values come out in a range of zero to 255. Not in a Java signed byte range of negative one twenty seven to one twenty six. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, we're doing image based work, or um, you know, the hardware C based systems generally have buffers that are um, based on defined buffers of of doubles or floats or something like that, where um, you want to be able to say something like, "I want to be able to to do." a general plus, but have it read and write to buffers of very specific data types. So it's more about the buffer that's underlying the system than it is about the type while it's in flight or the data while it's in flight through your computation.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm not sure um, if I understand that. I think there's so many yeah. things that I'm trying to fit into my head when I talk to you, but
1: <laughs> well, um, when you load, for instance, a JPEG and you mm-hmm. get back, um, it, it, using Java dot buffered image, you just load the JPEG under mm-hmm. the covers. It's it's got a byte array, a signed byte array, which is already an incorrect definition of the problem. <laughs> okay, but because uh, the, the the images are represented in unsigned bytes, and so mm-hmm. a signed byte goes from negative twenty seven to one twenty six, and an unsigned byte goes from zero to two fifty five. And so, if I want to do something like, um. Uh, something simple, some statistical operation like take the mean value of all the red pixels or something like that, I have already have to do in Java a bunch of nonsense
2: mm-hmm.
1: because it's got an incorrect definition of the problem at the like low-level buffer level. Um, and mm-hmm. it, the typing, I think there is some performance gain for if you're dealing with primitives on the JVM to not box them. There's some Mm -hmm. performance game there. And if all you're doing is summing a bunch of doubles, you can blow that performance game up to be major. So yeah, yes, you can sum doubles much faster. Rarely Mm -hmm. is your business value going to be derived from summing a bunch of doubles quickly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, um, it's, uh, it's useful at times when you get into chaining together a lot of operations, you do see big performance benefits from not, um, not asking as much from the garbage collector. And especially when you get into scaling to many, many cores, for instance, eight or more, you start to see much larger gains because all garbage collector access under the covers or most of it involves some level of cross core locking. And if we move to computational models where, and this is one of Clojure's original selling points was, you know, you can write your code and it'll It'll, it'll thread, it'll scale to more cores. And the way that we tend to write code, it'll scale to four to eight cores fine, but your scaling, well, your scaling will probably drop off after four because if you start slamming the garbage collector, when you move to high core systems, you need to avoid one core accessing memory that was allocated on another core. Mm-hmm. That is a very expensive operation. And so you want to be able to allocate a data set per core or a a scratch pad and a data set per core and keep those data sets and that scratch pad on that core. Mm -hmm. And when we're carelessly kind of, there are times when not doing things in a boxed, when boxing things, asking the garbage collector to allocate a whole bunch of memory, it just causes things not to scale as well as Mm -hmm. you think they should.
0: Right. Right. Uh, when you say box, you mean, you mean like turning, like having objects instead of the primitive yeah, types.
1: Yeah, I mean flipping between a primitive double to a capital D double on the on the server side, mm-hmm. and the memory usage between the two of those is surprising. It's it's more than you think it would be. So if you measure an array, uh, an object array of doubles of a million doubles versus a double array that's a million long, the memory mm-hmm. size difference you get is more than a factor of two
2: think
1: mm-hmm. it's a factor of three. Um, and it's more so if you can fit your data into, of course, an unsigned short or floating or a float point number, and it's not a double. Mm-hmm. So there's some memory advantage. If you need your whole data set in memory, there's, of course, there's a lot of memory advantages to having typed data as opposed to untyped data.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so some of, some of Clojure's core design is just betting that you never need the whole data set in memory. Right. Um, so you the, you the could lazy potentially part. do everything in a streaming design and that's mm-hmm. um, not true for the majority of data science you need means you need to calculate means before you ever process the rest of the data set because you're going to do you're going to calculate the means of each column and subtract them off so your columns have means of zero or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. you're going to do a group by operation there's group by operations or a sort there those are things that pull the whole data set into memory right
0: so how does this work with being lazy in terms of like how do you calculate those values? Well, is this the direction we want to go or
1: I mean, it's, it's a direct, it is a core direction of the difference between processing things with data type next versus processing things with core closure or with closure with transducers. And it's more of an, a, it, there's a lot there because. Mm-hmm.
0: Can we compare those? And other,
1: yeah. Well, hmm. data type next and tech.ml dataset assume some level of batching of your data. So a sequence assumes that each row is its own individual entity and data set, for instance, assumes that you're going to work with ideally a few thousand rows in a batch. Mm-hmm. So if you have a big data stream, instead of having a sequence of, of maps, you have a sequence of data sets. Each data set itself is like a significant chunk of data. Mm-hmm. Um, and this allows you to use a lot of the hardware abstractions I talked about in earlier in order to to calculate your answers. And it allows the machine, you, you just split that batch up it, such that each core gets its own section of the batch to work on for a while. And it allows you to do various things like that where um, I think uh, y- you end up seeing a lot of benefit in terms of uh, both latency and bandwidths Assuming you can afford the initial batching. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The um, thing is, is you. you um, this is really good because everybody there. I'm trying to get this style of programming just represented in the larger closure community, mm-hmm. and I think I, I actually think. Um, it's just good to answer these questions this way, but I think that the larger community, every there, there are infinitely more people that feel like you when I say this type of thing than mm-hmm. who just like oh I get I get it you know, mm-hmm. and so it's I, I think you're speaking for a huge number of people when you're you're confused right now. It's not uncommon. Right.
0: So how about we try to like let's say I have I'm using closure core functions. And I mm-hmm. just process some kind of data. I do, you know, filter, map, reduce, and I'm just going over. I'm not using trans- standard transducers even, right? I'm just using yeah. closure Core and for every single operation I am producing some kind of, I don't know, print on the memory uh, because I need to have this somewhere and then this goes to the next step and the next step. And I think this is why we have transducers, right? To mm. alleviate this pain of not creating those intermediate steps and then just somehow process this, Um, is that right?
1: Well, well. (laughs) Yes. Not not exactly. So when we talk about lazy, we can differentiate between lazy that's caching like a traditional closure sequence and Mm -hmm. lazy that's non-caching like a transducer Mm -hmm. based sequence. Okay. Um, And we can also have things that are just immediate where the job is done immediately. Mm -hmm. So um lazy caching is conceptually a simpler programmatic model than lazy non-caching because people will inevitably do some side-effecting operation or an operation that takes a long long time mm-hmm. and if you have lazy non-caching you'll get either the wrong result or you'll get exponentially longer runtimes versus lazy caching mm-hmm. on the other hand if you cache all your values and you're dealing with small things such as an a integer or a floating point number, you're cache Now it, you, you, you're like doing a map and you're caching the result. You're doing a filter, you're caching the result. Um, that's the way closure core is designed and transducers just say, if I'm doing a map followed by a, a filter, we're not going to cache the intermediate result. We're going to pass it directly to the filter function. That being said traditionally in functional languages enclosure chose not to do this for simplicity reasons i'd guess or just because it it seemed to work fine without it initially Mm -hmm. but they'll do kernel combining so in haskell if you do a map and then a filter it will it will produce you the end result will be a lazy sequence but the intermediate results will not be lazy thunks or sequences of any sort it can if i and this is something i thought about a long time ago we if we instead if if map returns a sequence that has a filter operator on it, then you can imagine that sequence applying that filter operator just after the map function and not producing an an intermediate sequence. So there, there is a way that you could write a a closure core style map and filter pathway that is lazy non caching and thus can combine the map function and the filter functions together in a dense piece of code. Mm -hmm. But If you um and instead of doing that, uh they went with chunking, which um I I I think a lot of people and myself have had lots of issues with chunking in terms of it doing things that I don't expect at times, but it makes sense because all the closure data structures are these trees, and the trees at their leaves have dense collections of data. Um and so okay. if I chunk, I can essentially go through the leaves and just give the leaves to the system as a chunk seek.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it, it it does make sense in a lot of ways to do things that way. So, okay. so if we look at levels of performance, lazy non-caching is kind of the lowest. or uh, Lazy caching is the lowest. Lazy non-caching gives you more options, but can be a lot more confusing. And of course, if you know exactly what you're doing, just doing it with no laziness is... Mostly the fastest. Mm-hmm. Um, but you got to know what you're doing a priori. And that's mm-hmm. the problem. It's not iterative at all. Mm-hmm. And it's annoying. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. And the D-type next is lazy non-caching?
1: D-type next is lazy non-caching. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say it's it's a mix between immediate and lazy non-caching. Because it has operations that are immediate. They Like filter. Okay. The group by and the filter and those types of things in D-type next are, are immediate. So if you pass it a big, big, big vector of doubles, um, it's gonna, and you ask D type next to filter it, it's gonna return you immediately the indexes that pass the filter, and it'll do this mm-hmm. in parallel. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's almost like it's a different, it's a, because you I went lazy non caching, and because I'm dealing with countable things, it's a different programmatic model slightly.
0: Right. Um, so the way I sort of think about the the D type next is like there is this abstraction that is a buffer. And there are readers and writers, and I feel like mm-hmm. you could compare this somehow to a sequence in Closure Core. And then mm-hmm. over the sequence you have those uh, Closure Core functions that you can use. We talk about map, filter, reduce. Uh, how does it work with D type next? I mean, if I use the core functions on this uh, abstraction, can I use it, or how does this? Yep. uh
1: You can. I can. Uh, it. Yeah you for sure can use closure core map and filter. If you want to get back something countable, you have to pipe that back into another make container call or something like that, where you have to say, okay, well, I'm done with my processing pipeline. Just create the result of this data type from it. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it D type next does a lot of things in index space. So that's Mm -hmm. one big advantage of, of having a countable buffer is when I say filter, I can just say, I want you to run the filter op, but I just want the indexes that pass the filter. I don't want to, I don't want the values that pass the filter. Mm -hmm. And so um, that allows me to apply those indexes to other things that Mm -hmm. are, um, for instance, other columns in a data set or, the first time I saw this really used well was actually uh, with neural nets where they were calculating some result from the result in the neural nets loss function. It was doing non-maximal suppression of bounding boxes, which means it got a whole lot of bounding boxes and it was trying to figure out which ones overlapped, which other ones, and it was going to take the ones with the max confidence. Mm -hmm. And it was doing these kind of distance calculations and, Filtering over the distance calculations, but then applying the indexes back to the original kind of data that came out of the neural net. But just mm-hmm. to say there's – there's, instead of working in value space, if you work in index space, it gives you a somewhat different set of advantages and disadvantages. Okay. And once you're in index space, it's easy to say, given a, given a buffer, I want an indexed uh, – here's indexes, and I want a new buffer that, that only – that is the old buffer with the indexes applied. Mm-hmm. So in that way, it's filter is a two-step operation if you want to get back to the values af- post filter. Because I say filter to indexes and I apply the indexes to the original buffer and it gives me back just that buffer with the indexes applied.
0: Right, but when I use closure core functions on the buffer, uh, then I am getting back, I guess, sequence uh, yeah. instead of... The abstraction you were talking about which is the buffer. How would I work with the library using, I don't know, if I want to continue some kind of operation and I don't want to convert this to a sequence? Does it make sense? Uh, well, you
1: would, yeah, you would. Um, it, in the terms of map, there's a there's a buffer map that preserves the Random access attributes of the buffer. So there's mm-hmm. an element wise map. It's called emap. And in terms of filter, there's arg filter and arg sort and arg group by which all work in index space. I see. And so so then you just have mm-hmm. y- Go ahead. you just end up working in index space for part of your work.
0: I see. So on top of the abstraction of the buffer, there is also some kind of functions for functional processing, if you will, uh, that yeah. help me to work with the with the data structure. That yep. preserve the exactly. index based.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, and it preserves the random access attributes of the of the of the system.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, consider
0: supporting it by rating it on your platform and telling others about it. You can also support it directly by buying a subscription at closure.stream or sponsoring it on GitHub Sponsors.
2: All the details in the show notes below.